Amanda, let's take a musical trip back in time and talk about our roots as grand professionals with sincere apologies to one of the musical greats. Do you remember what it felt like to be a pretender? Your first day on the job as a grant writer. (laughs) Yeah, basically, I had no idea what I was doing and didn't even know where to turn to for help. No one has to feel like that anymore, thanks to the free resources, downloads, and webinars available at dhleonardconsulting.com. Whether you are trying to learn all the acronyms in the field, because trust, there are a lot of them, the writing basics, or how to reach out to potential grant makers, you'll find free resources that can help at dhleonardconsulting.com. Free stuff for grant writers! (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Day Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 4 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're doing more in Season 4 to help nonprofits, local governments, and the consultants who serve them raise more money and get more grants by sharing real-world experiences and interviews with experts in getting it done. You may hear a y'all or two along the way and singing and strange sound effects. They happen. That's right. And there's more of us to love in season four because we have episodes dropping every other week all year long. So let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by season four sponsor D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com? Check it out today. Today we're talking about grants, but from the perspective of an expert in making, grant making rather, and nonprofit leadership. For grant writers, fundraisers, development directors, and executive directors, the actual process of grant making that happens before and after a grant deadline can seem mysterious and confusing. In this episode, we'd like to start dispelling myths and open up conversations with grant makers and offer you some concrete tips on educating up when you're dealing with your supervisors, your directors, board members, and all that fun stuff when it comes to grant seeking and other aspects of nonprofit leadership. And here's the best news about these crucial and complex topics. Our guest today has the unique expertise to take on all of these ideas. Margaret Katzkon has decades of experience in building a highly successful community foundation, raising millions of dollars, and much more. Yes, Margaret specializes in executive fundraising coaching, board training, and consulting for fundraising leadership, an organization whose primary purpose is to grow nonprofit leaders who transform organizations. She's an experienced and joyful fundraiser, having spent 22 years at the Community Foundation Boulder County. She's very passionate about the intersection of coaching with fundraising and the way leaders who are willing and wanting to up their game can step away from anxiety and dread and step into their leadership role as fundraisers for the organization. Her career and development spans over two decades and includes active fundraising and leading a five-member team that raised $12 million a year, and she also oversaw donor relations for a donor-advised fund program. 
She's got experience raising money for annual operations, initiatives, major gifts, planned gifts, events, and she oversaw this five-person team, offering extensive donor relations and philanthropic services to existing donors and funders. Her nonprofit clients now focus on a variety of mission areas, from basic needs to adolescent mental health to offering opportunities to people with disability. Margaret holds a master's degree in journalism from the University of Colorado at Boulder and a bachelor's degree in creative writing from Cornell University. She is a certified profession coactive coach or CPCC. These are initials I haven't heard before, Kimberly. Um, This is through the Coactive Training Institute, and she is also a graduate of CTI's leadership program. So Margaret continues on in our tradition of bringing people onto the podcast with zero experience and zero expertise, because that's who we're about. But, but, but seriously, that's an astounding, oh. astounding um, CV and experience. So welcome, Margaret. We're so happy you could join us today. Thank you, Amanda and Kimberly. It is so fun to be here with you all and, um, you know, and get to and get to talk fundraising, like get to get to geek out a little bit. So I'm super happy to be here. We're here to geek out with you. Excellent. <laughs> um, and we really we do have tons of questions for you. Um, and the one I'd like to start off with, you identify strongly with the idea of being a joyful fundraiser, which I love that. Um, but I'm curious, what does that mean to you? And how does that definition change? during, I don't know, demanding and stressful times in the world that also deeply affect nonprofits and philanthropy? Yeah. Whew, that's a big. We could go for a whole hour just on that question. But I know. It's a big question. So for me, the idea of being a joyful fundraiser, and this um, started very, very early in my career when I went to um, to a community foundation conference and our speaker was um, this man, his name was Peter Hero, and he was the, the then executive director of the Silicon Community Foundation, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which was, you know, meteoric rise happening there. And he said, um, you know, whenever I see a Porsche driving the other direction on the street, I know I've blown it, right? Like that's the gift that I didn't get. And he went on to talk about, which is something that has resonated with me forever, that, you know, we can offer gifts to people that feel as good to them as driving a Porsche. You know, that's that's our job is to um, is to, you know, talk to donors and get them so excited about the change that they're making in the world that, you know, that they can park those feelings in the garage next to the, next to the sports car. So I think part of being a joyful fundraiser for me is believing that, you know, believing that when people look back on how they spent their money, you know, they, they might remember the bright yellow Porsche, but you know, the thing that really sits with them is how they made impact and how they, um, you know, gave to organizations that were doing work that that lit them up, how they made a difference. And so there's something about believing that for me, that, you know, that people love the gifts that they make. Donors love the gifts that they make. So that's 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 for me how to how to be in joy around this. You know, it's learning about people and trying to um, you know, sit on the same side of the table with them and help them make gifts that just, you know, feel great that light them up. So a little, a little detective, a little regal, you know, and getting to talk about things and make connections. Um, And you asked how, how is that different um, at this moment in time? And, you know, I don't, I don't know that it is, you know, people have a lot of anxiety. I get, I get that. I feel it. I hear it from my clients. You know, the the financial world is uncertain and has been uncertain for years. Um, But I think, 
you know, we just, there's, there's a little bit of trust, you know, there's a little bit of a, of a spiritual, almost just believe, you know, people are still, um, people still care about things, you know, people still, people who cared about the environment three years ago, still, they, that's what they still care about, you know, and they are still willing to, um, to support work that's important. Um, there are people who are willing to support work that has nothing to do with COVID or the economy because, you know, it's um, it's for an institution in their community that they care deeply about and they want to keep it alive. So it's 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 not projecting our stress and anxiety, you know, trusting that our donors are they're They're just living their lives, you know, and still doing a lot of the things that they did before. Yeah. Well, and I would think, especially in this day and age, we need joy now more than ever. So the ability to continue to, to give and find that joy is an even bigger impact these days, I would think. Yeah. I think people are very motivated actually by crisis, you know, by emergencies, mm-hmm. by, right? Like, I mean, we see disaster funding being a giant motivator for people and people who have nothing to do with, you know, they've never lived in a place where the hurricane hit and they don't know anybody, but they just, it makes them feel like they're part of the village. And I think there's a lot of that in the space right now, as we look at, you know, organizations trying to navigate through a couple tricky years, unpredictable years. I feel calmer now, just having heard the answer to that question. (laughs) Listening. So to follow up Love with that, that um, um, in a follow-up, Amanda had mentioned earlier in your, in your storied career and all the wonderful accomplishments, the incredible growth of the Community Foundation of Boulder County that you were a big part of, going from $200,000 in the bank, which is nothing to sneeze at. Let me say personally, if someone would like to deposit $200,000 into my account today, I would be also filled with joy. But that aside, um, so from $200,000 to $150 million in endowments and grants paid, taking that sort of that joyful mindset that there's enough for everyone, that people are interested in what they're interested in and find joy and giving sort of I'd love to tease out maybe those more, a little more concrete top three reasons or or tactics or ideas behind that incredible growth in that foundation Whew, yeah I'm not let's see let's see if I can come up with three I so I think number one is the idea of community foundations and this local you know this local mm-hmm. idea that mm-hmm. people give where they live and a community foundation, you know, creates a vehicle for people to really understand what some of the deeper issues are in their community um, and, you know, to, to be part of the solution for those things. So I think there's a lot of resonance there. Um, in our case, I think a second thing, honestly, was the startup mentality. And many of my clients are really little and scrappy and getting started. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, there was something about that that really resonated with donors. You know, a lot of our donors were, they were okay investing in a good idea, you know, in like, we understand the issue and here's our best plan to try to make a difference there. Or, you know, here's a place that we're wanting to give money because we think this other organization is you know, got a really solid approach to this, even though we don't necessarily have metrics and results yet. Um, and so that was that was something that that we found really resonated. Um, and people getting getting so maybe here's number three: people getting the chance to invest in something that felt like it was growing and you know getting purchased. I, I also do think that um, 
donor advised funds. You know, we we got our start. I joined the community foundation in 1996, and you know, donor advised funds were still kind of a new-ish idea back then, um, but a very appealing idea to donors. And I know that they are um, more controversial these days than probably than they were back then. Um, but I, without getting into that controversy, I think um, I think that donors love that vehicle. You know, it's a it's a great way for them to honor whatever financial cycles they have in their lives um, in terms of when it makes sense for them to make donations and what the tax implications of that are, and then, you know, have something with some structure to be able to make some grants out of. So um, that was a giant part of our growth. And I think it's, you know, it's kind of a good idea. Was that three? I think that was three. That was three. (laughs) We'll take as many points as you want to give us. (laughs) And I should also say, honestly, that, you know, just giving a little shout out, we, we had an amazing, very, very visionary um, executive director in the organization who loved fundraising, um, which has been an inspiration for me. You know, what a difference it can make for an organization when you get a president or, a you know, an executive director who prioritizes that and, and um, understands how important that is. And she also was incredibly talented, you know, so... That, that helped, but just, just prioritizing it. And that's some of the work that I do now is trying to help executive directors care because when they care so much more is possible. That's oh, true. Absolutely. Yeah. Whoever's at the top can so shape and impact an office and the work you do and the accomplishments you have. I've, I've seen it. I've experienced it from both sides of that table, good and bad. Yeah. So yep. It makes a difference. Well, a lot of our listeners, we work on the other side of the desk from grant makers. You know, most of them are grant seekers. Um, And so, and I know every organization has different ways they do things. Um, But I'd just love to learn how you and your team at the Community Foundation, how you set criteria around setting things like grant cycles um, and the review process and all that good stuff. So any any highlights or lessons learned you want to share about what worked, what didn't? Um, yeah, so we we were a super funky organization at the beginning. One of our best ideas to get community members engaged was to do a lot of volunteer committees to read over grants. So that's a very different process for most community foundations, um, you know, to think about writing a grant proposal to more of sort of a lay person or somebody who's interested just in the community, but who maybe doesn't have years and years of experience or, you know, asking I'm going to say high level questions and you can't see me, but I'm putting quotes around the high because I don't know that those are better questions or not better questions than, you know, than fresh eyes ask. So I'll just, I'll leave that out there. Um, Here's, here's, you know, what I, what I know um, though from our process that I think one can generalize. And the first is it is just humans who are, who are reading grants. And, you know, what I, what I know about humans is that they follow stories and threads really well. So if I read a grant proposal and at the end of it, I still can't quite tell you like what, or I can't name, you know, what, what are the programs and how exactly do those programs work with people and how, how is it that that work is making a difference? You know, I mean, if I don't get walked through very specifically and in a very clean way, you know, here's the dollars go into the organization and then dot, 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 you know, what's, what's going to happen. Um, 
And, you know, I know that sounds really self-evident, but I'm here to tell you that, you know, I have written, I've read so many grant proposals where I put it down and I'm scratching my head. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like what, what exactly are they, you know, this is a really big problem. It's an interesting problem, but I don't understand kind of what their theory is of how they're going to address that problem or what work they're doing. And so um, in some ways, if you, if you pretend that you're writing to people who, who don't know what you're up to, that, that might be a great place to start on a grant proposal. Um, it was true for the Community Foundation that our sweet spot with organizations was probably a little bit sooner often in their trajectory. You know, I think um, many foundations have, you know, have a really specific place where they are looking for grantees and it's not right at the beginning, right? They want you to have been established and have a few years of work under your belt and maybe some measurements and, um, you know, evaluation of how it's going. And they're in for a couple of years and they want to leave you better than they found you in terms of infrastructure, right? And um, I think that is generally true, but I guess my my counsel here for the Community Foundation, we were happy actually to work a little bit more at the startup end. Oh, wow. Um, you know, to like bring us your scrappy and let's see if, you know, if we can make a little bit of a difference to get you some legs here. And I think there are funders out there that that feel that way, but I do think it's another thing to understand, you know, what is the sweet spot of the foundation that you are applying to? You know, where do they want you in your growth trajectory as an organization? And if you're not there, like, I don't know, maybe it's not worth your time to put together a proposal. Because oh, I do absolutely. think most foundations really do think along that, you know, you're too big, you're too small, you've been around too long, not enough time, you know, where is the sweet spot? Oh, yeah, I think that's... Whenever I teach, go ahead, Kimberly. Sorry, there's, if you're listening and there's a little bit of a lag that our brilliant engineer could not quite fix, blame it on my connectivity today. That's what I'll say. I'll take the blame. But uh, here's (laughs) the the follow-up question um, that I had in terms of the grant making. So clearly having having sort of the community volunteer approach to grant reviews is is not the norm certainly not in foundations in the southeast of the united states i'll say that but um were there some other uh, you're working with organizations agencies grantees that are that are that are scrappy which makes me think of scooby doo in the best possible way cuz you know scrappy doo was the totally. psychic. um so <laughs> so you have um funders that are really interested in the Scrappy-Doo storyline of organizational development. Did you um, find yourself sort of modifying the way that the proposal cycle worked or the complexity of the proposal or things like that because you were working with a younger organization that didn't have all the, you know, admin bells and whistles? Yeah, I would say that's such a good question. I would say the two concessions that we made, and you know, keeping in mind, I was not the programs director, so I, I am, you. you know, I am speaking just from my own way that I plugged into that. Um, as soon as we were able, we went to a common grant application to, you know, which felt like at least they don't have to fill out a whole new thing for us. And hopefully, you know, if they're using, and I'm in Colorado, so that you know, the Colorado common grant application that. We're not making them write something from scratch. Hopefully they either have or will use this format again. Um, the second thing we did, which which is a concession to Scrappy, was that we offered in the letter, if you did not get money or you did not get anywhere near what you had asked for, the, you know, if you want to hear some truth, we are willing to meet with you and give you feedback on your grant. Okay. Um, 
so we we did a lot. We spent a lot of time, um, you know, meeting with people who were open to hearing, you know, here's here's where the conversation went, you know, when we discussed this proposal, and here's here's where it went south, or here, you know, here's where it went into the no pile. So um, we could give people feedback and encourage them to reapply, and that actually felt like a delicate but really valuable service for people, again, who, who wanted to hear it. Well, and I would think it helps. They're going to have a better proposal next time, which ups their chances of getting funded. And it gives you the opportunity to better see what they're doing and fund a worthwhile organization. So it's I, any funder who offers me feedback, I take up, take it. And yes, sometimes some of the things they say, I'm like, seriously, that's your complaint. But I'm like, you know what? Okay. <laughs> so it's going to make me better next time around for that particular funder, at least. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, not everybody is great at taking feedback. (laughs) It can be painful. That's for sure. Constructive criticism is a good thing though. So, and I wanted to go back to something you said, you talked about, you know, how you've got funders who you have to have been around for a while, or they'd rather you have this much experience or that. I think that's something that so many people that are new to the grant writing world don't get. I know Kimberly, Kimberly and I both have for years taught some intro to grant writing classes and it's amazing how many people just think, well, there's there's thousands and thousands of grant and I can just go and apply for all of them and not understanding that, no, yes, there may be thousands of grant out, grants out there, but you're going to have to figure out maybe the five or 10 that fit your organization and your program and your budget needs and trying to comb through all of the requirements for everything. It really, before you even start writing, a big part of your job is all that research to figure out who's the fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And- Absolutely. Right. I mean, we have to match like, of course, a funder who doesn't share your mission area or yes. your geography or doesn't do capital campaigns. And that's what you're looking for money for. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I think an additional um, lens to look through is, yes, am I the right sort of size and age to um, be interesting to this funder? Yep. Very true. Yeah. In that vein, if as we're looking at... Um, the competitive grant cycle first in the foundation. You also talked a little bit earlier about donor advised funds. And uh, I would venture to say that for most community foundations, the amount of money that they have in their, in their assets, if you will, um, for donor advised funds far outweighs the amount of money they have for competitive grant proposals. That's certainly true. Uh, in the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. Um, and I think that um, you made a really good point about how you wanted to work with the donors to help them figure out the right time to make the gifts, to establish the donor-advised funds, and to know when to give. I think the the controversy, and that that's kind of not where we were wanting want to go with this whole entire episode, but just if, if people aren't familiar with it. The controversy is in that not all donor advised funds are shepherded so carefully. And so particularly maybe in more commercial financial institutions that would sell them as products as part of their array of products. So there's not that encouragement for the donor and there's not that education or connection that community foundations seem to offer. So I would love to hear how um, your community foundation sort of help make those connections because that is essential, right? To how they 
how you worked with and, and as a team, how you worked with donors um, to connect with community agencies, because I think that's a sticking point, whether you're grant seeker mainly or a fundraiser mainly or a shop of one executive director. You're like, how can I make the connection that honors the donors, but also gets the money where it might need to go to do some the good things they want to do? Yeah. So, you know, community foundations charge more than Vanguard and Schwab funds. And I, I can't speak for any other community foundation other than to say like that, that difference, that that's what they were paying us for, mm-hmm. you know, was mm-hmm. actually to do these services for them. Um, and so we, we took that very seriously. And for people seeking grants, and I've, you know, had this conversation hundreds of times with nonprofits who were curious there are absolutely donor advised fund holders who choose, you know, a community foundation or someplace else, but who who are not making direct grants, who are not using a check because they actually really want that screen, you know, and without judging good, bad, like they want privacy. They do not want their grantee organizations to know who they are. And so if a nonprofit receives a check from a community foundation fund and it has a name, you know, like the unicorn fund or the rainbow fund or, you know, something that does not name the donors, there's a pretty good chance that that's intentional. And you know what? I, I don't know what to tell you. I think I don't know that there's a great, um, there's no direct way for, for a, you know, a grant seeker to find those people. You know, they, they are asking the community foundation to hold that privacy for them. Having said that, like behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you know, we, um, we had donors, we, we did a lot of work to sort of tag our donors. Like here are donors who would like to be contacted, you know, like with an emergency request, because again, like with the Porsche thing, like there are donors out there, nothing makes them happier than, you know, your boiler blew up. You have a problem. I can give you $10,000 and solve your problem. Like there, there's philanthropists where they love that, like that feels great. And so we wanted to know who of our donor advised fund holders wanted to be, you know, alerted when there was an emergency need. We had donor advised fund holders who loved reading the grant proposals, which was another reason that we tried to have people write them very clearly, you know, um, and they, they, at the end of the year, as they were looking at their budget, wanted to know, you know, what, what did we like or what didn't we have enough money to fund? And so we, we invested a lot in establishing relationships with our fund holders and, and wanting to understand how they wanted to interact. Um, and I think, you know, there are, there are different approaches for every community foundation out there. Um, but I think I am seeing more and more, again, with other clients that they ha- that I have, you know, looking for for donor advised fund holders to co-fund with them, you know, to to be involved in new ways. And and our number, by the way, was eighty percent of the assets at the community foundation were donor advised funds, right? And only twenty percent were, um, you know, available for responsive fund making. So you know, the more of that eighty percent, we could kind of you know make part of that process and reward the effort of our grant seekers. The happier we were. So it's like a beautiful relationship there. So it's also sounds like maybe the one of the vehicles for the foundation staff to learn more about the nonprofits in order to communicate with the donors is through the grant proposals. I mean, and the profiles perhaps and other other ways. So 
I realize that every community foundation is different, but I think that's something important to hold up if someone is new to working with community foundations, that the request for a lot of information may actually, it's good, it may serve even a greater purpose than that competitive grant cycle, and to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. I know that um, over the years Absolutely. when I worked for different agencies, I would be contacted by my contact, um, my peer at the community foundation to say, hey, could you fill out this form? Uh, we can't tell you why. And I always did real quick because I knew that's what it meant. I guess I would back it up a little bit too and say, um, I'm trying to offer advice for folks in a more general way, maybe to if there are events uh, in person or virtual that the community foundation is offering, just sort of ways to interact so that if their agency is new to the foundation, that connection can get made. Is, is there anything that you would throw in that mix for people to consider or along those lines? Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think, again, at many community foundations, it's also the job of the program officers and program director, you know, the chief fund grant maker, chief grant maker, um, to, to know and have personal relationships with many of these nonprofits. So I always encourage people to, you know, to reach out. And sometimes at bigger foundations, there's a program officer for each area that they serve, you know, so for them, like go online and figure out who your person is and see if you can connect with that, with that person and know. And, you know, I, I met often with nonprofits, even from the development side, I don't mm -hmm. know how many other development people are willing to do that or have rules one way or the other, but I was like, you know, if somebody's going to make the effort to call me, I'm going to hear what they have going on because it makes me more educated when my donors have questions, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Again, I don't know that everybody does that, but I, I made all of my staff people do that too. That was, and also read grant proposals. <laughs> all of the development team, you know, every year read grant proposals just to have them in their brains, you know, yeah. just to know who was doing what. That's great. Well, I'm going to flip the top of, of conversation and to lean more towards the leadership side of what you do. Um, so nonprofit leaders, as we know, they're always since the beginning of time have faced incredible stressors. These days, it feels like we have to do more with less. You know, we've got to be worried about keeping our staff and our community members safe. Um, so what advice would you give to our listeners who are grant writers or fundraisers, fundraisers? What are things that, you know, staff can do to help support their executive directors and their nonprofit leaders, you know, while still being strategic about all their fundraising, but what are other things that they can do to help make life easier for those who are at the helm? Hmm. This is not exactly responsive, but this is what I want to say nonetheless, which is, one of my favorite stories is from um, from an amazing fundraiser, and she was a board member at the time. And she um, she went on a call with her executive director, and I think it was an environmental nonprofit. And um, they were asking for a million dollars, you know, for some campaign that they wanted to do. And they went to this woman who they thought was going to be their biggest donor in this initiative, and they did their presentation. And she nods her head and she goes, "I'm not giving you one thin dime for that." And they were like, you know, they choked, they yeah. stopped breathing and then they started breathing and they said, well, can you, you know, can you tell us why? And she said, you know, there's no way you can solve that problem with a million dollars. 
you know, when you actually have a solution that, that looks resourced, come back and talk to me and then, you know, and then we'll talk. And, you know, honestly, my best advice to nonprofits is like, stop going backwards. You know, I mean, things still cost what they cost. Hold on to your vision. Hold on to what it costs to run your nonprofit. Like, there's just so much tap dancing and apology, especially in tough times. And, you know, my my best counsel is stop it. You know, just, just hold steady. You're doing good work. It costs what it costs, you know the power utility that your, your heating bill, like they, they, they don't accept your goodwill. Like you need money to run this organization and hold that, you know, hold that as like, this is real. This is true. This is, you know, there, there's no way around that. So it, there's a determination that I, you know, want to feed into people, you know, um, yeah. that stuff. Stop lying down, you know. And so. I wish y'all could see Margaret right now because I can see her. You can just see the passion in her face and her gestures. And, and she's like, she's really telling you, stop it. Just stop it. Yes. <laughs> so and what I got out of that too is not only be honest about what it is, but don't be afraid to say this is the true cost and this is what we need to truly get it done. So Yeah. And, you know, most of your donors, I mean, right, they have money. That's, that's yeah. why they're donors. Not all the time. Obviously, there's, there's many, many people who don't have lots of money, but they, they do understand money. Like they understand business. They understand that it costs money to get things done. And I just think if we tell that story more as nonprofits, instead of, you know, oh, we can't spend more than X amount on our administration, you know, like, when was the last time you heard a business saying that, right? No like, kidding. It's a nonprofit business mm-hmm. and it costs what it costs. And I do, I think our donors very much respect when we are realistic and even visionary about th- this is how much it's going to cost to get this work done. Very true. So in that vein of inspiring leaders to stand their ground. We wanted to let our listeners know that you are also a part of a really interesting podcast called Fundraising Leadership. And um, just feel free to take a moment and plug that bad boy and tell them what it's about and why they should listen. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So Fundraising Leadership, I'm kind of the, you know, the fundraising department in some ways, but we mm-hmm. also cover topics of leadership, management, and coaching. Um, and so when we are putting together, um, we have blogs and podcasts, and it's usually the same guest who does a podcast and also a blog. Um, and we are looking for them to inspire us with their stories, with their lessons learned um, across all of those areas. So Last week, for example, we interviewed somebody who, um, you know, the title is essentially like how the last capital campaign I worked on almost killed me. She talked about how the, you know, failure is not an option, um, you know, mentality around getting involved in projects like this, like her, her health totally, she forgot she had a body, you know, she forgot to feed it good food or exercise it or make it sleep or any of those things. And she did have like go off the rails health wise. And so um, those are the kinds of stories that we want to hear and learn from people's raw and real um, or their best, their best (laughs) lessons learned. So that's where we go on the podcast. Nice. And so, so then they're always an interview then bringing in somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, occasionally the, the fundraising leadership team will riff about something. We do some bonus episodes with the, there are four of us. 
Okay. We will. Yeah. Nice. We'll, we'll get going on something some days. <laughs> Usually a guest. Oh, oh yeah. We, ne- we never get yeah. going on anything. We are just so not ranty. Yeah. So, Margaret, how can people not even find... <laughs> right? So, how can our listeners find you and the coaching you do and the podcast and all those good things? Um, yeah, thank you for asking. We would love for people to check out the Fundraising Leadership um, you know, website, which is fundraisingleadership.org. Um, and we do, again, we do a lot of executive coaching for nonprofit executives and people in higher education. We do a lot of work with teams, a lot of leadership work with teams. I'm not going to say the word dysfunctional exactly, but teams that would like to be better, that would like to do better with candor and communication and those kinds of things. Um, and we do, um, we do a lot of workshops for boards as well. So training, coaching, and I also do fundraising consulting and fundraising coaching specifically with leaders who, um, who just would rather have a root canal than pick up the phone and ask for money. And we see that all the time, you know, these incredible executive directors who are so passionate, you know, about the, about the work that the organization does, but who really don't have confidence to to make those asks who are tangled in their money stories and have huge dread about that part of their job. And so the, the coaching around fundraising can really move the needle for them. So we've covered so much today, Margaret. Thank you for taking the time to break it down and share your expertise with us. And um, we want to encourage our listeners to take a listen to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast because you might hear some familiar voices there soon, just saying. So thanks again, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you for all of your very thoughtful questions today. And it's been my pleasure to be here. Sure. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you again to our season four sponsor. D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to download their latest free resources today. So thank you for listening. We wouldn't do it without you because we can't do it without you. And we would really appreciate it if you would leave a review of Fundraising Heyday on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps so much to, to, to get those secret algorithms to push us out so that more people can uh, hear us and learn from us. So please do consider leaving a review. As always, we're honored you chose to spend time with us. And we'd love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate your time and your support. In our next episode, in two weeks, we're going to share our pro tips for getting the most from the bewildering array of virtual and on-site professional conferences. Oof. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.